Media and Blue Ion, this is The Way Out There. Conversations and stories about the relationship between people and the outdoors. We interview outdoor leaders, teachers, guides, and everyday individuals who have answered a call to step into the vast beauty out there. By hearing their stories, we hope you'll be inspired to go way out there yourself. Greg Gowder is an Emmy-nominated, award-winning filmmaker from Charleston, South Carolina. Among the film projects he currently has in production is an environmental adventure documentary called Sea Change that he's both directing and producing. That's the beauty of film is it, it is this truly creative art form where there, there are individuals who, who try and who are able to, in some cases, make, uh, make uh, good films by themselves, but... It's something that requires a village and it requires uh, a community to be able to really bring together this, this singular story and this singular idea of how to tell that story. We sat down with Gray to learn more about the Sea Change documentary effort and to hear about his own journey to becoming a filmmaker. And on a programming note, in our last episode, we talked with Zach Buer and Trip Brower before they departed on their two-year Apparent Winds voyage, which is the adventure that Sea Change will document. While part of this conversation with Gray builds from that previous show, you don't have to listen to the previous episode first. The two conversations work together in either order. Well, great. Thanks for doing this, man. Well, thank you so much for having me, and thank yeah. you so much for uh, for covering the uh, the journey that I'm I'm hoping to make a film about as well. I know uh, your journey on their journey. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Their expedition is is very exciting, and it's going to encompass so much more than we can possibly cover in one film. So it, it's great that we're getting uh, more of their story out That's there. Cool. Yeah, their little formats and stuff. Definitely. It is, man. It's like you know, there's this central journey, but then there's like all these micro journeys wound up within it, you know, Absolutely, yeah. it's sort of fascinating. I mean, I even think maybe the most adventurous part of this whole thing is their relationship with each other as they spend two years in a boat going around the world, you know, that's like as crazy as anything else that they might encounter or see or do on the trip. Definitely. And, and their relationship with themselves as well. Yeah. That's, that's something we're going to be looking at a little bit. Uh, cause that, that relationship with each other, the relationship with, um, friends and family, and then the folks that they met, met along the way, uh, were a focus of an earlier form of this film, uh, before we, we realized we just simply had too much to, to look at and we had to whittle yeah. down. But, um, the, the way that, both of these guys uh, relate to themselves and the way that they relate to um, their understanding of their home and their yeah. understanding of that connection to their home. And by home, I mean both the coast of South Carolina and also our, our planet um, is going to, it, that's going to change throughout the journey. And as they, they meet people along the way, as they experience these different uh uh, landscapes, bioregions, different strategies for dealing with the challenges that are facing our world, um, and and through that, I'm I'm hoping that we're able to to see an exciting and inspiring growth uh, that 
not only our audiences, but the people who are reading their book, the people who are following along through their blog, and anyone who comes into contact with this story that we're, we're telling through a variety of formats uh, will feel like, hey, this is something that I can also do. Yeah. Uh, because we, we want this more than anything to be um, an opportunity for people to realize that these aren't problems that are too big for any of us to be able to do something about. And the reason why the three of us are, are doing this and why our, our uh, growing team of, of creatives and, and um, uh, other people who are supporting us and making this uh, are doing this is because uh, we believe in hope and we believe it's not too late for us to, to make the kind of changes that we want to see on, on our planet to um, empower the natural world to begin to fix itself with our help. I like that. I mean, you know, and it's someone is involved and passionate about conservation in general too. I always worry that at times we get so wrapped up into the doom and gloom side of it or, you know, guilt or fear as, as, as triggers to get you to tune in and do something that, uh, we are uh, missing the larger opportunity to inspire people based upon things can be done. And I think, you know, people tend to follow a movement towards something, not away from something. Um, in the end, I guess both triggers have to be there. Um, but I would sure like to see the movements, you know, spin around like here's what we can do. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and so many great stories have been told that are making us aware of, of these problems, making us afraid of a future if we don't change. But... Uh, not enough stories have been told of, you know, how can we fix this? How can we make things better? How can we uh, have a future? And uh, something that really struck me that um, is a big reason why we're taking this direction is um, I I learned there's a new uh, um, clinical form of depression out there that's seen among mostly elementary school kids that's called climate and anxiety. Wow. And I just came across that randomly in, um, I think it was in, in Mother Jones last summer. Uh, and it was talking about uh, people who were climate scientists and oceanographers and, and professionals who were living this every day. But then it went on to say that uh, little kids are experiencing this which is disturbing it's disturbing it's appalling Um, no child should be you know worried about what their world is going to look like when they're my age or your age or our our parents age um uh when you know they're barely in in grade school and so um for them and for uh my four new uh, little cousins who are all two years and younger. I want those little boys to have have the opportunity to to live in a world that uh, inspires the same kind of wonder for them as it did for me. Nice, nice. All right. Well, um, let me backtrack for one second because um, this is really good stuff, and that's what I want to weigh in um, as it relates to Sea Change, the the documentary film you're working on, and even other projects because that seems to be a thread that's woven throughout your work and your your projects and your films. So, but let's let's backtrack for one second. And I know you've described it. It's a bit of an evolving concept uh, to what this film is and can become as the journey as as you know 
left on uh, November 2nd, and it was even a journey before they departed Charleston on the, on the 2nd to pull everything together. But I would assume, that, like in many cases, this whole thing continues to like evolve and find itself and change. But as best as you can now, tell me your short premise elevator pitch for what the documentary film Sea Change is going to be about. So Sea Change at its core is, uh, it's about hope and it's about the ability of uh, communities to uh, to use the natural world um, that's around them that is specific to their bioregion and uh, they can they can rebuild that into something that can mitigate climate change on the local level cool and how many places around the world are they gonna potentially visit to learn those lessons from and how many of those might filter in through the documentary or supporting material. Well, uh, a big part of what's guiding our our um, uh, expedition is um, this organization that's called Mission Blue. Uh, they are Sylvia Earle, the renowned American oceanographer's uh, organization that she founded back in 2009 with the intent of protecting at least 30% of the world's oceans by 2030. Okay. Uh, and we, as a group, were inspired by her 2009 TED Talk where she uh, said that uh, her wish for the oceans was that we would use every means necessary, films, expeditions, new technology, submarines, media, anything that we can to protect what she called the blue heart of our planet. Hmm. And if we can do that, then she believes that we, we have a chance and that our ocean has a chance because the ocean is the key to uh, our, our planet continuing to, to thrive. Okay. And it's not right. just about sustainability, it's about restoration to abundance. Because right. if we're sustaining, everything's remaining the same. And it's not getting us back to where right. we need to be. So she started Mission Blue as a as a platform and a program to start to address that and absolutely and through her program um, she's formed a uh, a network of uh, locally managed marine and coastal protected areas called hope spots around the world aptly named yeah. and How many uh, of those might there be there there are dozens yeah. there are dozens okay. of them and uh, we are going to be visiting um, as part of the expedition uh, between 20 and 30 of those around the world and for the film uh, we're going to be visiting significantly fewer since you know we simply don't have, time. have time and a 90 to 100 minute film to get too deeply into these places okay. but um, we've but several of them will be absolutely yeah, yeah we've we've identified a few um, so the first one we're visiting is a little bitty island that's uh, part of Fiji called Tavarua Island wow. and uh, it is um, uh, uh, an island community that has formed around an eco resort uh, there. So some people who are really interested in surfing or in the World Surf League may have heard of the Tavarua Island uh, Resort. It's, uh, and um, a big part of what they do there is uh, they're attempting to, to rebuild their keystone species for their, their coral reefs, which is the giant clam. And that's been de uh, devastated by uh, over harvesting for mm -hmm. generations and now the the island is coming together around these clams uh, through this hope spot and through uh, the Fiji Fisheries Department to, to restore their reefs. So with Mission Blue and all these hope spots um, that set up, have you, you, were in, you guys were inspired by the whole program and the whole premise. Absolutely. Um, and then and her leadership on it. Is there any way that 
y'all have been able to reach out or think about somehow collaborating or participating or adding to that work? Well, good question. Um, they are they are an, <laughs> uh, they are an integral part of uh, uh, of our of our work. Nice. Uh, they are the main point of contact for how we we're able to reach all of these different organizations and how we're able to, to uh, be able to work with these That's amazing awesome. people how did that how did that opportunity or conversation get started um, it uh, through through two different ways actually the uh, South Carolina aquarium are, are connected uh, through uh, through mission blue when Sylvia Earl came here uh, several years ago so we knew about them through there and I also just you know cold call reach reached out, out and uh, said hey we've got this really cool thing coming up and we're making a movie about it uh would it be okay if we use some of your hope spots in this film and the communications director got back to me and he, he said yeah abs- absolutely this sounds great and he put me in contact with uh shannon rake who has been so so helpful she's the the uh, uh the lead uh she's the lead coordinator on uh, their their ambassador program for all the different hope spots. Yes. So she's in charge of making sure that every new hope spot out there and every potential hope spot out there uh, has the tools in place to be able to succeed. And she also works with all of the the different hope spot managers and ambassadors That's, out there. Yeah, I was going to ask yeah. you about that dynamic. So mm-hmm. I mean, if they as an organization don't. It's not them running all these hope spot and hope spot mm-hmm. programs. It sort of requires the efforts of all the people behind all those hope spots. They may choose to whatever the right word is, certify one or recognize one as this is going to be a mm-hmm. part of the hope spot network, mm-hmm. and then therefore they're going to engage and support and participate. Yes, but it's driven in large part by locals or inter- parties who are interested in that spot. It's right? it's essential for the community to be to be engaged. Right. It's essential for uh, there to be be um, some kind of structure in place uh, wherever this place is uh, for the hope spot to be successful. Right. So based on the simple economics of of how this would work, uh, it'd be impossible for them as an NGO to be able to manage yeah. uh, these all these places around the world, often in extremely remote parts of the world as well. So uh, it, it is up to that community, it's up to that small group of individuals to not only nominate this place, but also to ensure its its continued um, uh, survival, its uh, restoration, and uh, build a link between the community at large around there cool. and and that place. And that's a big part of what we're actually hoping to do here. I was going to ask you. I bet you have an answer for this. It <laughs> yeah. brings it back home because, like, selfishly thinking about our beautiful place on the coast, we're here in Charleston right now, talking and, and living and working. Is uh, it's not a hope spot currently. Or is that maybe I shouldn't ask that question? Well, um, but it could be. Cape Hatteras has a hope spot. Okay. And coastal Georgia has a hope okay. spot. And South Carolina so far remains uh, a gap between those. Okay. But um, we are in the very, very early stages right now. But um, uh, as a part of our focus on, on uh, hope spots and studying not just hope spots, but locally managed uh, marine preserves, marine spatial plans, protected areas along coasts that are made up of a, of a coordinated effort of different community groups, we're, we're looking at how we could potentially replicate that here. Because cool. there's such an amazing 
conservation infrastructure here yeah. in Charleston. You have the, the aquarium with all the amazing work they're doing. You have the land trust with all the work they're doing uh, further up our watershed on, on our islands and then further inland with the longleaf pines. Uh, you've got you um, the conservation leagues. You absolutely, go all the way to the upstate, upstate forever. They all yeah, affect. Yeah. You've coast. got Waterkeeper who are out yeah, there monitoring keeper. every single day. You've got Score who are rebuilding our oyster reefs, which are a vital part of of our our um, hydrology. It's a vital part of our Surfrider. Yeah, you got Surfrider, and you've also got the friends of uh, the South Carolina Low Country who are using education to directly uh, connect elementary school students yeah. to uh, different wildlife refuges along our coast and so we're hoping to form uh, a core uh, of a network around uh, these organizations who are already doing amazing work and find a way to have a shared uh, unified vision for all of them so that they can um, be able to, to begin to collaborate. They can they can have a forum where they can say, okay, we're these these are things that we want to do. These are things that are in these areas that we are doing. Um, how can how can we have some synergy here? How can we we help each other and be able to introduce opportunities for uh, for schools, for community groups, for um, um, groups like the uh, the Gullah Geechee community who have lived on our sea islands for generations and are uh, uniquely connected to uh, the the future of our marshlands, to our, our our fish, to the to the access that we have here in the southeast to our waterways, which is unfortunately disappearing yeah. as development expands. It's finding ways for for people to have uh, a way to be engaged and to be empowered to be able to do something. And these hope spots provide that kind of vehicle. They do. And is it, are you seeing that, um, I don't know if you know enough about what's played out in the Georgia hope spot mm-hmm. programming or the Hatteras, North Carolina one, but are, are those, are they engaged in those kinds of programs? That- um, their focuses are, are specific to what they need to do. And, okay. and the, that, that's the beauty of a hope spot is it, it is, something that is is um unique to every single uh location unique to every single organization who forms it it's okay. it's more important to have that protection have that engagement have that uh connection to the wider world than to have a um a, a, a set kind of thing that everyone fits yeah. into yeah, and so our vision for what our hope spot is going to look like here uh, and how that will evolve and who all will become involved in that uh, will certainly be different from... And it has to form itself. It does, it, yeah. 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 It has to form organically. Cool. Uh, and so right now we're simply trying to, to find, you know, who are the key elements of, of this and how can they work with us to um, uh, identify uh, what, what are the key bioregions we want to protect, what are the communities we want to have involved, and what overall is, is our unifying mission cool. that, that we can do here. All right, let me, um, let me come back to the movie one more time, okay. the, doc, the documentary. So, and, mm-hmm. uh, Trip and Zach, I uh, interviewed them, and uh, that is the next episode to air, and then you'll be after that. So mm-hmm. people tune in, and, and uh, thank, thank you for the patience, because it's taken us a while to get that one up. But we'll have them talking about their specific journey and then it'd be cool to hear this hopefully be cool to hear this conversation as a follow-up as a sort of a two-piece but just getting back down to the, the documentary and the adventure themselves so 
you and Trip and Zach sort of connected and hatched. I mean, they, they had their sailing adventure mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. planning or in the works. Yes. You bumped into those guys and um, and quickly sort of sprung an idea about, well, let's create a film around this that explores your sailing adventure, but with some larger context and threads. Is that how it worked? In a way, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, so it was um, January 2019. Uh, they invited me to come and sit on the vessel that they're now traveling around the world. And um, and they knew in an abstract sense that they wanted to travel around the world. And they wanted to... How'd you run into those guys? Um, I, I knew Trip through the Low Country Maritime cool. Society. And yeah. uh, he and I had worked together in Okatee uh, when he was doing a, a boat building camp down cool. there one summer. Um, but uh, yeah, he, he uh, invited me over uh, to talk about how they might be able to record this. How they might be able to, to document it in some way. Because... Uh, they they wanted to, to write a book about uh, this amazing journey that they were about to go on. And at the time, both of them were about to turn 30 years old. They were both uh, um, single for the first time in a bit, and they felt like this was an important moment in their lives to be able to uh, to go and do something big, to be able to do something that someone with a lot of responsibilities or connections back at home might not get the opportunity to do because yeah. not only is this something that will take them away from for a long time but it's dangerous yeah. uh, it's something that you don't you don't do lightly and so uh they they wanted some help figuring out how to tell this story so we um talked for a while about what they were interested in in learning while they were out there, what they were interested in, in exploring. So they, they wanted to, to learn more about the cultures and the people that they were going to see. They wanted to, to take a look at uh, climate change because it was this unique opportunity that we were going to get to see um, island and coastal communities who uh, are going to be profoundly affected by climate change through uh, sea level rise and through right. our changing oceans very very soon, and so this type of an uh, of a trip that they're doing uh, would be incredibly unique because we won't be able to see these same places that they're going to be visiting um, in in a generation from now. Those some of these places will be gone, right. and uh, so that was the first version of our story. It was this. Uh, anthropological piece where we're trying to preserve the the stories and the cultures of uh, these these um, people whose lives were so connected to the waters that surrounded them and we realized how depressing that was going to be <laughs> for us to live in for for a couple of years and we decided you know what we need hope uh, for us as much as hope for the people who are going to be watching this movie and the people that we're working with and so that was a key moment of evolution. Absolutely. Like the, the premise and the approach. Absolutely. Like, right, we got to lighten this up, or not lighten it up, but just provide a light. Well, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. we need something that we can live for. We need something that, that makes this worth doing. So, where did, well, how did that pivot the 
first idea, the first premise y'all were hatching? Well, um, a lot of the groups we were looking at uh, were starting to to do this kind of restorative work. Okay, um, so I, it goes from loss to restorative work. Uh, yeah, yeah, it it goes loss from is part of that, but it exactly exactly it goes from an anthropological piece about preserver, uh, pre- preservation of culture. Right. So it was kind of this man of Aaron kind of story right. or Nanook of the North in like a not so colonial kind of way Uh, kind of kind of version of the story but um uh, so it goes from that into uh more of a chasing coral story where it's a story about people taking action uh to try and do something about their uh about about their surrounding world because we'd established the unique connection that these different island coastal communities have to their surrounding waters, to their uh, surrounding uh, wildlife and uh, in the natural world that has had such a big impact on right. on who they are as a culture and right. society and what their current economy is often. And so we were looking at how these people are choosing to, to try and fight back against climate change, how they're using their natural world and they're protecting it in a new way to try and mitigate those yeah. effects. And from there, it's evolved uh, to the point where... That was my next question. So yeah. So, um, so that was what we were going with for a long time, and it was going to become this big story about uh, this, this um, global... F- effort that's on a local scale uh so like global change can only happen at at a local level if you start there and Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh we realized that wow this story is is so big and we were starting to become overwhelmed by that and this is after they'd already left uh and they were in the caribbean and we were trying to to pair them up with all these different organizations. Every single island that they were going to, I had a spreadsheet of people that they needed to talk to because we were going to make this massive media ecosystem of mini docs and video blogs and all this kind of stuff and realized, you know, these guys are trying to do this in two years. That seems like a long time, but to do what we're trying to do would take five years at least. So um, With that many... Yeah, and conversations. the amount of time it would take to stay in each of these places yeah. to actually get that um, type of perspective yeah. on yeah. each and yeah. uh, to be able to to get to know the people there. It just it, it was impossible what we wanted to do. Um, and so I had the opportunity um, it, back in January to uh, a year after I'd sat on the boat with them to join them on the boat again. Yeah. Uh, just this January. Just this January. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I flew down to the little bitty island of Bonaire mm-hmm. that's in, By Curacao. Uh, the, yeah, yeah. In the Aruba. Dutch Antilles down there and, um, uh, hopped on the boat with them for uh, a passage to Cartagena and Colombia. Cool. And it was, it was really remarkable experience how long did that sail take uh let's see we left on tuesday and got there midday saturday okay. i think it was a u3 or did you have a couple yeah, other, it was the, the yeah. three of us yeah. yeah we were i'm right and i think if i recall those guys saying is like you know having having friends colleagues partners on board is a huge benefit to it them is. just it's, oh, just, yeah. uh, it, it adjusts their shift schedule and lets them sleep a little bit better and just obviously having someone to talk to besides each other has got to be a pretty cool thing. Absolutely, yeah. And, I mean, as a safety thing, it's essential because um, um, when you're traveling, you know, when you're you're doing these passages, the boat doesn't just stop 
Mm-hmm. When you when you are, are in the middle of the night, you can't just you know everyone go downstairs and and sleep. Uh, somebody's got to be on watch, and so uh, they have to rotate every three hours. So if it was just just these two guys, that's great. You know, just the two of them through there, and so um, that was uh, part of my job when I was with them. Is uh, I would I would stay up the first uh, six hours from from uh, dusk to to midnight, and then. Um, uh, would get up for the dawn shift, uh, so 6 a.m. until midnight the next day, and would just do that. Um, and uh, um, it was it was really interesting. It was a chance to talk to both of them while we were out there, and um, t- time changes. Yeah. Time changes in a big way when you're out there on the sea because uh, you'll you your sense of schedule, your sense of what's normal, your sense of needing to do things or, or needing to stay active completely changes because you're in this little bitty place. You feel like you're not going anywhere, even though you're flying across all this water and, um, just everything becomes, uh, a lot more, a lot simpler, a lot simpler in, in what your needs are from yeah. moment to moment. Um, but at the same time, you're, you're surrounded by all of these new sounds. So it's, it's a sensory overload That's when cool. you first get in there. Nice Cause, uh, the, uh, well, sensory, I, oh, sorry, go ahead. So, so the boat itself is, is fairly loud. Even when, when the motor's off, mm-hmm. um, it's got all these unique, squeaks and thumps and clacks and all kinds of different noises that it makes um so uh i think it was the second night i was there with them i went down after my night shift uh and i was sleeping in what's called the v-berth which mm-hmm. is at the in the bow yeah, of the bow. ship because it's shaped like a b <clears throat> a, a v up there in the nose cone and two berths uh, up there yep two berths up there um i i was on one side and all the equipment was on the other and it was encroaching kind of down into my area so i was uh um uh kind of scrunched up there in the in the front which was fine it was cozy and that first night um I was listening, and and the water, because that part of the boat is completely underwater, and so it sounds like you're in a washing machine, and this water is swirling all around you, and it's this just remarkable sound. And after a few minutes, I remember hearing this this buzzing, hmm. and this clicking noise, and squeaking all around me, and it was the strangest, most otherworldly noise I've ever heard, and it's it just sounded like static electricity dancing all around me and when i came up on deck the next morning uh trip said oh you just missed it you just missed it after you'd gone to bed we came into the middle of a gigantic pod of dolphins that had completely surrounded the boat and were all up there at, uh, at the bow wow, and we're, we're diving all around singing you so, asleep so serenading it, yeah so it was it was amazing to get a glimpse into into their world yeah just just through sound um you um if i recall i think we were talking the other night um you guys got into some nasty 
some nasty we did you think like if you told someone hey i'm gonna be sailing from bonaire to cartagena you'd be like that sounds like yeah paradise the whole trip yeah perfection well but it didn't quite work out that way we jinxed ourselves um (laughs) we jinxed ourselves uh so one thing i've learned on this trip is that the ocean is a very playful thing (laughs) and um Playful in the way that that Loki or, or, or a trickster god might be kind of playful in in that sometimes that play is not not kind spirited. It's, <laughs> it can get a little mean and it can find ways of giving you what you think you want in a way that you couldn't even imagine. Sure. So we had had a few days of perfect sailing. It was beautiful, great wind open sky sun coming down and open sea you're not open sea. Of any land right no we well we yeah. we had gone past curacao and aruba right. uh we'd actually gotten buzzed by uh venezuelan um uh, coast guard on our second day right. which was a little terrifying because right. we were watching you can see the shoreline way out there and we were thinking oh you know we're gonna right. see coast guard boats coming out after us like three american kids with cameras on board was probably yeah. <laughs> something they would love to find uh but um uh, we were we were jinxing ourselves so badly, saying, "Oh yeah, this is the best sail we've had so far, and this is great." Uh, and um, that that night, I think it was Thursday night, we uh, were all out there in the cockpit of the boat, and it's this beautiful open night, not a cloud in the sky, stars everywhere, uh, big big bright full moon in the sky. It was you know light dancing all over the place. And um, uh, we were listening to music in, in the cockpit, and all of us were there, and it was just this really kind of peaceful, exciting moment. And remember the, uh, when Pink Floyd's uh, Shine On You Crazy Diamond, that 26-minute epic, came on and started sinking with the movement of the boat and uh, the movement of the waves. That's a trans- uh, transcendental moment. Yeah, right exactly. I was yeah. thinking... You know, this is this is pretty awesome. This is pretty special. You know, uh, we've we've kind of bonded over this amazing thing. Um, Hold on, let me pause you on that thing. I'm sort of fascinated by those moments. Yeah, uh, I think they're all too rare. And in fact, I can only think of one in my life, mm-hmm. um, and that was. And I I think there's a couple of ingredients. I don't think you can force one, but mm-hmm. there are some things. So you're on the you're on this journey. You're in a obviously different setting. You yeah. could probably be pretty tired because you all are running a weird schedule. Yeah, you know? absolutely. You're in nature and mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. just incredible spectacle of it all. Mm-hmm. So um, I had spent a day out in New Mexico with my wife. We were traveling through there. I think we had been hiking pretty far that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're rolling back to maybe Santa Fe or it could have been Taos. I think it was Santa Fe. End of day, sunlight, storms off in one direction. That crazy glow color and then a song from los lobos was playing called be still oh yeah it's just a gorgeous song of theirs and i swear all of a sudden we looked at each other and it was like it got goosebumps and Mm -hmm. it was like everything was in sync Mm -hmm. colors wind light yep um the song the music our heads our thought it was weird it's one of those things where you like you rise up out of your own self and you like see that something something weird is is all linked up at that moment and i don't know enough about transcendental moments but i've always figured that's what some of those which is this this moment when you can kind of see something larger some larger connection happening and that's is that what you guys that's were in that moment very much very right much all, yeah all hell busted loose. uh and <laughs> well we were we were 
at this moment of inspiration and peace and excitement because we had just talked about the future of the project and we'd spent most of the day uh, working on camera gear to get them more familiar with that and working out specific goals for what could come ahead and so we all felt feel pretty good we felt we felt great we felt inspired we felt like you know this this trip is a, is a success and uh we uh we're gonna go conquer the world and uh the ocean hurt us uh, so we knew that there was going to be some, some wind that was going to kick up the next day. Tripp had been looking at, at his wind charts for, for a couple of days. And so we thought, okay, yeah, this part, when we go across near where the Colombia Venezuela border is, that's going to be a little bit hairy. So we're going to need to get a bit closer into shore. Uh, so when we woke up that morning, um, sea had gotten huge. The waves were probably, probably you know, 20, 25 foot waves at that point. They were rolling pretty hard, and it was a pretty wet day in the cockpit. But then this gigantic, um, almost Jurassic Park-looking uh, shoreline comes into view. And and at first it starts as this monolith, but as we get closer and closer and closer, we see um, the incredible texture that is. Uh, the mountainous coastline of Colombia mm. on its eastern side and uh, some of it's bare and covered by cacti and eroded into the sea and some of it is is green and lush and then you look further and further back as the clouds kind of hang over those mountains and you see snow-capped peaks that look higher than you can even imagine that are further yeah. further back there um, and as we got closer the wind picked up and so we started getting really worried and thinking thinking uh, okay we, we need to drop down this mizzen mast because right. it's might tear and uh, so we're getting really worried about that and it's pushing us closer and closer to shore but there's this big bay uh, that we're about to come up uh, to and so Trip was thinking okay we can we can stick our nose in there and try and get out of the shadow of the wind and uh, pull down the sail and wait uh, it out and well no not ne- not necessarily wait it out okay. but we can just get in there in the shadow of the mountains and, and you know yeah be protected and can motor around and uh, can just get around it and maybe by the time we get to the other side of it it will. Uh, will have maybe dissipated or we will be most of the way there where we can rest somewhere um uh but <laughs> turns out there was a gigantic jet stream coming down off the mountains as well hmm. so as we got out of the the sea breeze we started getting hit straight from the land by 50 60 70 mile per hour wind coming in these gigantic gusts just straight down off the cliffside and um we're looking at our our gps at this point thinking you know if we get in trouble around here we are we're in in really bad shape because there's nobody nobody living anywhere near where we Mm -hmm. are and we come around this corner and find this incredibly creepy um adventure park just right around the corner and there are all these people uh on zip lines and uh riding uh banana boats and stuff back and forth on this on this shore and we're like where did this come from no <laughs> meanwhile zach and i are hanging on for dear life by the mizzen mast trying to pull down the sheet and trips whipping us into this little cove and uh, in this gigantic 
um, um, a gigantic gust comes right down over the mountain, down over where all these people are, and it hits us full, uh, full on our, our port side and just about capsizes the boat. Damn. And flips us completely on our side yeah. as Zach and I are pulling this thing down, and it writes for a second, and we all just kind of look at each other <laughs> like that just happened, yeah. and um, and so we think, okay, we need to find somewhere safe just to rest, find a good spot to be, and we keep going, and um, we keep sticking our nose into all these ports that should not exist. All of these little towns that aren't on the map. This place that looks like Miami Beach or looks like like um, uh, the Grand Strand up there near Myrtle Beach that apparently wasn't there when our GPS maps were made and been built in the last few years is just stretching for miles and miles and miles. And uh, we can't find anywhere to anchor. We can't find anywhere to rest. And so we keep going, we keep going and finally decide, all right, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna go across this bay. Uh, you know, sun's going down in a few hours. We're gonna go across this bay because hopefully we'll at least get a more consistent wind out there. So we start motoring out there, and that's when the waves get bigger and bigger, and they're starting to get up to about forty feet. 50 feet something like that yeah. and each direction you're turning is just getting you know worse yeah. and worse and uh zach and and trip uh start putting on their harnesses and their their foul weather gear and they said said uh gray we don't have another harness uh so you you don't want to be up here in the cockpit you've got to go back down down below so right before sunset about 5 30 uh, they send me down down into the belly of the ship, <laughs> and the only light uh, down there is a little red uh, light bulb that we use for uh, for keeping night vision and uh, the the nautical uh, um, computer that's down yeah. there as well. And uh, they close up the lid, and the the engine's running, so it's incredibly hot, and the air is still, and it's just this this. Um, and being down kind below sticky, on a ship and yeah. nasty weather is like, in and it's, some ways, the worst place to be. Cause it it it's absolutely like, talk is. Talk about getting green and feeling seasick. Maybe. It absolutely is. Yeah. And the ship is rolling pretty hard at this point because we're having to go across the waves. Right. Because uh, we can't go in with the waves anymore and we can't go out against them. So we're kind of going along the waves toward yeah. the other side of this gigantic bowl yeah. that's surrounded by so mountains. And. Side to side. Uh, it's rolling back and forth, side to side, all over, um, and it's doing that for what felt like years. <laughs> remember, at one point, I, I climbed up the little uh, ladder to tr- uh, up near the hatch just to get a little bit of the air that's coming in through the slats, of the hatch, and that's when when Zach opened up the door and saw me there, and and. Uh, uh, this was about midnight or something like that, and uh, uh, he was gonna check the, the nautical chart and uh, like, hey, you know, how you doing? I said, <laughs> said, can I just stick my head out for an air, for air for just a second? And and he he tur- he turns his head around and and this I see this huge wave come up behind him, and he says, nope, slams the thing shut and the wave crashes across oh, the cockpit. <laughs> in that moment and it kept doing that for for hours and uh so um while these guys were up there hanging on for dear life trip 
did a brilliant job getting us through this. And this ship did exactly what it was supposed to. This design uh, is supposed to rise up to the top of a wave, flick its tail out, and surf down the wave with the energy of the wave pushing it forward. And that's yeah. exactly what the, cool. the Hinkley did. Hinkley did. And uh, Trip spent uh, the whole night with his uh, back turned to the wheel, just doing little bitty adjustments back and forth, uh, trying to to get us Surfing you know up. lined up to surf. And um, I'll I'll let them tell the rest of it because they could see yeah, it. Yeah. But uh, we came upon a uh, a gigantic uh, river uh, around this. Um, city called Barranquilla that's on the other side of the bowl uh, and um, it's it's kind of like the Amazon it's this gigantic um, uh, tropical river that you can see it even in the night from how it's this milky color yeah. and um, they they said that when when we came across that you could feel it because it was this huge force hitting us yeah. from the land side while the wind which was probably 75 80 mile per hour get gusts at that point were with us and we were we were at 50 foot seas and um the way we knew that you know we were really moving is the previous speed record for this boat that hank and susan who were the owners had been able to get on it was uh, 8.9 knots they got 17.2 that night Surfing down those waves. Yeah, surfing down those waves, seventeen point two knots, um, and um, uh, dawn the next morning. Trip comes down, and somehow I've I've fallen asleep down there, just hang, hanging on for Exhaustion. dear life. Yeah, no, I was still hanging on at yeah. that point, and um, he he shakes me and he says, uh, um, "We're here." And I don't believe him. I think, no, no, that's no, you're you're kidding with me. <laughs> so so he said, no, seriously, we're here. And and I come up on deck, and the uh, city of Cartagena is just hanging right off our our port side, uh, covered in cool haze. Sight. Yeah, the whole thing's covered in haze, mm. and this hot tropical sun mm. is already up, and it's it's uh, maybe six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning, and um, that was. A pretty incredible calm yeah um, and uh, so we all got into port got got ourselves settled and slept <laughs> and slept for the rest of the day until imagine. we until we went out and wandered around the city yeah. the old part of the city which is pretty amazing that night um, but well, the next morning uh, when we were sitting around breakfast uh, we started talking about you know what do we actually want for the outcome of this what's something tangible we can do with it and um do with the experience of the last couple of days or no well no just just thinking about the future of this journey what, right. what is something that we can do and um we came together on the idea of being able to to have this hope spot here in coastal south carolina cool. uh, because mission blue has done so much for us and we're so uh tied to uh to their story and so much of what we hope to achieve is the definition of a hope spot that we thought you know let's let's just do let's do that let's have that be our raison d'etre and um find uh, a way to to bring all these amazing voices all these amazing um people working in our community together through this shared goal yeah which is yeah giving them 
a platform through the documentary, not to mention just the whole journey and all the other publishing that goes with it, to share their stories, to learn from, um, and then bring some of that energy, hopefully again, back home here to initiate that kind of program. Absolutely, yeah. In our own way here, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Very cool. Because um, our, our story mm-hmm. really is, it's a its a um, voyage of, of learning. Yeah. Uh, at its most base form, it, it is the, the hero's journey. It's yeah. Joseph Campbell's yeah. hero's journey. Yeah. You've got these two young guys who recognize a problem uh, with their their home in their the ordinary world as he called it and they head out into the unknown seeking the uh, the truth seeking seeking to yeah Yeah. seeking to learn how to solve the problems that let me ask you uh like maybe one last question on the on the film and Mm -hmm. then i want to i want to wrap by asking you some kind of questions about your background and how you how you got to this moment absolutely but maybe the last thing i just wanted to touch on with the film maybe is is more of the kind of the technical production side of it mm-hmm. is like as a as a filmmaker and I don't even pretend to know all the 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 layers of work that you have involved in this and the number of fires you're you're either putting out or keeping stoked but you've got to from everything from the you know original concepting to funding um, but maybe with this question I'm focusing mostly on just the production like what is yep. the filming look like and what are the various formats of film? I mean, are they taking film the whole time during this journey? You're parachuting in, you know, to, to supplement that or capture stories on land. What, just in a nutshell, and I know this is a whole other topic mm-hmm. for probably another podcast episode, <laughs> but how does that production process look like? Uh, so um, they do have cameras on board, and mm-hmm. those cameras are uh, a big part of the uh, the grassroots outreach of mm-hmm. our project um, much of what they're shooting uh, will probably not appear in the film okay um, um, as other uses yeah so absolutely 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 yeah. it'll be a part of the media ecosystem that we're right. using uh, as a part of the story uh, the film itself is going to be based around uh, uh, six key locations that we're going to be visiting uh, so uh, Fiji uh, we've got a hope spot in uh, coastal Australia, Morton Bay. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are going to be looking at the relationship between the Daintree Rainforest and the Great Barrier Reef near Port Douglas. Cool. Uh, we're going to be exploring how Seychelles uh, has created a ma- marine spatial plan, uh, which is going to be redistricting and zoning their um, territorial waters in in the new form of blue economy. So they mm-hmm. they're able to better manage their their isle or their um, island nation's resources sounds cool Makes from sense. there uh, we're going to near Durban South Africa where uh, there's a gigantic um, wetland uh, preserve there that used to be an uh, apartheid era uh, hunting retreat that um, kept all the locals out of there and now uh, these locals are the uh, the game wardens the managers the yeah. conservation experts for uh, these vital and unique um, bioregions that are all there together as one of, as this big um, uh, wetland preserve there near the Mozambique border. So we're going to be visiting them and then finishing our our uh, locations with False Bay, which is right by Cape Town. Uh, that features one of 
the uh, most beautiful scuba diving places in the world if you're looking for a kelp uh, ecosystem to dive in and it's a part of the larger uh, great African kelp forest that cool. is the underground Amazon or not underground underwater uh, Amazon rainforest that is this unique uh, blue carbon sink that we don't really know a whole lot about and so we're hoping to go down there to see what that looks like when it's being encroached by resorts all around it and uh, uh, the pressures of, of fishing and ecotourism and what, what all that feels so like. So those, those destinations yep. and locations will be kind of the <clears throat> focus of the documentary yes. storyline with mm-hmm. obviously Trip and Zach and their journey connecting those dots. Absolutely. Yeah. The, the, the guys are, uh, they are our vehicle to explore these, these places in the world and um, their interactions with the people who manage and who, who are the representatives of these places will, will shape our understanding of that. Nice. Uh, and um, as they return to Charleston to share what they've learned with uh, their community here and to, to, to work to, to use these skills, to use, the, use these connections to form a hope spot here, to, to protect their home, the thing that they love here, they're also returning to their wider home, which is our yeah. planet, and they're returning to share this knowledge with our audience, with the, the world as a whole. Very cool. All right, um, and so I guess key question is is the expectation is that this might be released 2023 yeah uh, so um we're hoping to have production finished in early 2022 Mm -hmm. um uh, the edit is going to be ongoing in 2021 so we're hoping that that post process won't take too long um and our goal is to have it in um a a premiere festival in early 2023 so that'd be either sundance or south by southwest hopefully very cool so let's let's um as I said let's sort of wrap with a couple of um, a couple of questions and discussions maybe just about your background and how you get to this because I think this is hopefully one of the things that is interesting about these conversations is that it's not only what you're doing but it's like how did you get to that place Absolutely. and it's the intersection in your case of of art um, and massive production ability mm-hmm. um, and um, concern and heart for conservation issues right. So let me start first by saying is like, when do you think you started getting it in your head and your heart that, that filmmaking and storytelling was something you wanted to, to explore and continue and it could even be a career? Um, well, the idea of storytelling uh, was a part of a part of life in my my family uh, as a small child, because uh, something we would do is we would sit around the uh, the dinner table at one of my grandparents houses and they would tell the same stories in a slightly different form over mm-hmm. and over so I, I grew up listening to those stories learning about people who had died long before I, I was born and uh, committing these stories to memory and um, listening to, to books on tape and hearing my dad uh, read amazing stories to me like uh, when we went through all of uh, C.S. Lewis's work, and then we went through Tolkien and did Harry Potter, and we did um, uh, Wizard of Oz and all those great epics. And so I- I've been surrounded by stories for as long as I can remember. You got and the story bug that yeah, way. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I thought that I was going to be telling these stories um, through archaeology when I was a little kid because hmm. I was fascinated by history mm-hmm. and the idea of. Um, 
of being able to, to discover someone's story and share it with people by literally digging it out of the ground uh, was something that excited me. Um, but uh, when you're, you're doing that through film, oh right? yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. But but when um, uh, I think it was after seeing the two towers, the second Lord of the Rings film in theaters. I think it was that film when uh, I was riding home in the car with my parents. I, I remember saying, I you know I want to do that. I want to I want to try and do something like that. But you remember uh, what the reaction was? Um, I think I think it was more of an like okay, you know. <laughs> I think it was kind of an okay because I I don't know if they Let's see how that plays uh, out. Yeah, exactly. I don't know how serious they thought I was, but um, what would you consider your first film project to be? Uh depends on what what. Uh, I don't know. I mean, that's 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 tricky because it depends on what the film is. I guess the earliest thing that I made was a mini documentary about um, a scout trip that we took down to the Florida Keys and I filmed uh, some of the build up to that and yeah. cut cut together yeah. cut together this goofy little build up to it uh, uh, and then I guess when I finally got to film school and and learned what I was doing um, before that, you were at William and Mary. Yeah, right? I was at William and Mary. Did you study um, there? I was studying um, history primarily, okay. but then I, I a history major. Give yeah. it up for history majors. <laughs> right? uh, but then also built a, a second major because uh, I I wanted a second major, but I couldn't figure out what that was going to be. So I almost had five, and yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I decided yeah, to do yeah. you know build your own interdisciplinary for the second one, and uh, it was. Um, uh, uh, cultural anthropology, music anthropology, film studies, um, and theater wow. all kind of yeah, married together, together. Uh, which was basically storytelling yeah, as, yeah. as a major. And um, uh, so I learned, I learned about stories and the stories I wanted to tell uh, there because the, the best history teachers I had there were great storytellers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Philip Dayleader uh, is. Um, I highly recommend his his um, uh, audio books too, because uh, he has a way of of talking about the Crusades and the Dark Ages that makes it so much more interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a fascinating yeah. story. You're absolutely right on that. I mean, there's a teacher back in college that I had, Marshall Aiken, if it's in the un unbelievable circumstance that he would ever be listening to this, that would be super cool. <laughs> but uh, he, 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 uh, the, his stories and lessons about uh, Brazilian um, history were mm -hmm. just amazing. And he, and he told them as a story, and he expected you, when it came time for exams, to yep. basically pour that back out as a story. And that, that method stuck with me more than any other teaching method mm -hmm. that I, that anyone's ever used on me you know absolutely like the power of the stories right? yeah yeah and, yeah and that that's a big part of what i do mm -hmm. uh because um i believe immersive education is the kind that um inspires curiosity in, yeah. in young people so um i've i've formed a, a nonprofit to go alongside my uh production company that's called enduring curiosity and cool. the, the point of enduring curiosity is to find ways to 
use the opportunities that I have in media or through uh, people I'm working with who are telling compelling stories to uh, bring immersive education experiences into the classroom for kids from um, elementary school through university and, and uh, into community groups as well. Yeah. So I don't believe we're ever too old to, to stop learning and stop being curious about I the world. <laughs> and um, so then you went and got, I won't, this, I won't call it just technical training because it was concepting <clears throat> training and how mm-hmm. to make a film training and everything, but you went to SCAD. Uh, well, I went to Trident Technical College here okay. in North Charleston first. first. Uh, okay. I, I got I my technical know. training in film right. there, and then I went and got my Master's of Fine Arts at okay. SCAD uh, and um, um, specialized in directing and producing there. All right. And, um, you know, what, what did the SCAD experience do for you, and would you tell someone else who's sort of contemplating either this specific path or some other mm-hmm. story format that that is a, a great way to kind of round out and set you off on your on your professional career? I think it really depends upon what that person wants or mm-hmm. what that what kind of storyteller that person wants to be. Mm-hmm. Um, because for me, the great thing about SCAD is they had a lot of opportunities uh, if I was willing to take advantage of them. Uh, it's, um, I, I, I call it like a, a laissez-faire style of education. Yeah, yeah. Where, it's here if you want it. Yeah, it's here if you want it. It's there to... To, to be used if you have the ambition and the creativity mm-hmm. to do it. And that was a big, a big change because um, so much of education as I had experienced it before that was, um, you know, you've got your assignments that are in front of you, you've got the things that are required of you, and you execute those things to, to the full. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I realized pretty soon in... Um, film school that I wasn't getting what I wanted to out of that and that uh, the education I was getting was was falling short of what I needed based on uh, where I was in the program and so I started uh, creating more opportunities to to make uh, make films or to work on projects Um, uh, I went and worked with an industrial design team at the school on uh, a concepting uh, a program that that Ford brought to the school. We were looking at uh, what a world uh, governed by uh, autonomous vehicles would look yeah, like, yeah. and so that was an opportunity to play with story crafting, to play with world building, and uh, to just um, um, explore some things that I was I was already yeah. curious about. Uh, but it was it was going out and finding. Um, the best team of people to tell a, tell a compelling story. Well, that's interesting. I mean, it, you know, and I, I think I've come across that before. Maybe in my own experience is that you know you're you're picking up certainly skills along the way in your time there, but maybe the bigger lessons are you're developing the initiative um, and the ability to kind of reach out and form collaborations and find partners and explore projects, which is exactly what you need to be doing now. Definitely. And And it's those general skills that mm -hmm. actually wind up being better probably and more useful on a, on a long-term basis than the specific skills. Yeah, and and I, I don't mean this to sound like uh, I'm I'm saying SCAD wasn't a good experience. It absolutely was. I think it's part of the sort of natural almost process of that. Definitely. And and that's the beauty of what that school offers is uh, in a way it is um, figuring out 
who who's going to be successful and who's not. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. they're not going to give it to us. Yes. I uh, I'm a big believer. I think that's a great system. Like we've got it all here. Mm-hmm. Insane support, connections, and all that materials, resources. But do you have the fire to want to go pursue it? Exactly. Exactly. Um, do you do you not only have the fire, but uh, do you? have the ability to form the connections needed to tell these stories because um film is inherently a uh a, 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 an art form of relationships yeah and if you're able to to build relationships and to uh be able to to find a community and it's just like what this film is about it's about yeah. building communities and working together yeah. in a shared goal if you're able to do that and if you're able to to um, keep that personal connection with people, uh, they will help you through their own expertise, through their own creative genius, be able to tell your story in a way that you can't even imagine. Yeah, I love that. And um, that's that was the the most amazing experience of working on my thesis film. That was the closest I've gotten to. Um, the type of filmmaking that that I want to do beyond documentary when I when I get back into narrative again, um, it's it's the opportunity to uh, work with people who who are experts in sound, who are experts in uh, in in creating the the way the lighting looks, the people right. who are the experts in right. costume and uh, set design. And when you're away from that in documentary mode, do you you miss that, and, and vice versa? When you're um, in narrative mode, do you be like, wow, it'd be cool to do a you know a documentary? Is that sort of it, those, it depends those on the story. It really those scratches all the time. Well, <laughs> <Scratch> yeah. <those laughs> well, well, that's that's the. I mean, uh, right here on the the desk next to me, I've got a notebook, and it's it's full of it's full of things that I wish I had time it's to make. Man. Yeah, I wish I yeah. had time to make all those stories. Uh, but um, I believe that for um, no matter who the storyteller is, uh, they need to look at the story that's in front of them and analyze what is the best medium for me to tell the story. And in the case of Sea Change, it's a documentary. In the case of uh, a different story, that might be an immersive virtual reality piece. It might be uh, cinematic, um, um, uh, you know, theatrical uh, narrative film. It could be. It could be anything. It could be uh, a, a five-minute branded content piece. Yeah, it it yeah. just depends on on what is right for that particular story. And so, to answer your earlier question about whether or not I miss it or whether or not, well, it's it's an itch. Um, yes and no, because uh, it's it's the thrill of the chase. No matter what it is, it's it's the thrill of of building this incredible thing and working with with talented collaborators to tell this story and um, I see my um, my nonfiction subjects as similar to my actors because I have to get to know this person uh, and the role they play in the story in a really intimate way yeah. and yeah. it's important to uh, to understand uh, who they are as a person first, mm-hmm. so that you can you know how to work with this person best to have them be comfortable, have them be able to be vulnerable for you in front of the camera because that's hard. Mm-hmm. That's really hard. We think it's hard behind the camera. It's even harder in front of the camera. And to have this person feel comfortable, to feel confident in our ability to not make them look stupid, and 
the confident in us being able to tell their story in, in an authentic way. Uh, and, and so it's practice for both. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. absolutely yeah. practice for both. Um, I, I do miss breaking down a script. That's something I love to do is to, is to uh, take a story that someone's written or that I've, I've written and figure out what actually is going on there you know what the nuances are it's same thing in theater where where uh, the beautiful thing about a theater script is there are no action lines and it's all words it's all all what people are saying mm-hmm. so you got to figure out what are they actually doing yeah. when they're saying these things uh, because what they're doing will will change the way they say it or what they mean when they say something yeah. and that's the beauty about Shakespeare is is you can play Shakespeare potentially a million different ways. Not all those ways are going to be right, but they're going to make it an interesting version of the story. Yeah, the opportunity is there to bring your perspective on it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It's it's all about, you know, how does this person who's guiding the story see the world yeah. Yeah. or see these people within this world? Yeah. Yeah. And um, that's the fun part about projects like sea change too is it's a chance to um to get me out of my comfort zone to get my team out of our comfort zone and to give ourselves the opportunity to uh, to go and learn every single thing possible about something that we're excited about or something we're we're uh curious about and that's why i i think that this is the greatest job i could ever have because I, I'm someone who loves to learn, and my job is to learn as much as I can and then to learn more about it by getting to share it with other people. Nice. Well, man, that's awesome. We can't thank you enough for, for sitting down and sharing so much of this. Uh, for the work you're doing to bring this documentary and the story to life is amazing. Um, how, do we, how, do, how do people follow along with what you're working on with, the, with your projects and, and with Sea Change, the documentary? Well, uh, we've got um, Instagram pages for both. Okay. Uh, there's a um, sea change documentary uh, with periods between each of the words. Right. That's the easiest way to find us right. there. And then uh, you can find me, um, uh, Gray Gowder, on Instagram. And there are links to all cool. my websites on there as and well. Then the, uh, uh, and then Apparent Wins has an Instagram. I Absolutely, two, yeah. So across Apparent... those three, you'd be pretty, pretty staying in tune with what you guys are working on next and how the whole the whole story and the adventures unfolding. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and apparent wins it's, it's awesome to follow what they're doing because if you were curious about what, you know, far flung places in the world look like, then that's a great opportunity. If you're curious about what two bored guys on a boat who are (laughs) in the middle of a 30 day passage are doing, you'll get that too. Uh, It's like to be uh, in, you know, 50 foot seas yeah. and 70 mile an hour winds uh, locked down in a, in a cabin of a boat while it's rolling. Exactly. If you're interested. That's getting uncomfortable in a, in a, in a big way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you're interested in tiny houses, there's no better <laughs> tiny right. house than the cabin yeah. of a boat yeah. It's yeah. Uh, or sustainable living. They're, they're yeah. focused on uh, reducing their waste yeah. uh, and their consumption of in all forms. And yeah. so, um, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating opportunity yeah. for people, no matter what their interest is, to yeah. Uh, to learn. So uh, I, I encourage them to support those guys. Um, we're working with uh, Donate to It, mm-hmm. uh, the um, uh, socially conscious uh, um, fundraising crowdsourcing site to raise money for both efforts. Uh, the, all money 
um, for uh, apparent apparent wins goes directly towards the journey towards helping these guys be able to complete this journey and be able to uh, have the kind of access and opportunities that they need with these uh, organizations and hope spots around the world and we also have another one uh, through our nonprofit um, uh, for sea change on donate to it as well that's going to help us build the kind of uh, unique um, uh, outreach opportunities and educational opportunities that we're hoping to achieve here in the low country and beyond yeah that's great so two ways to get plugged in and help absolutely yeah two great ways to to help in any way but i i encourage people also to to look for things in their own community that uh that they value that things that they they love and begin to think about how they can work as a community to go and go and uh take care of that special thing and and make it make it shine awesome man great it's really really fun man it's inspiring and and i learned a whole lot more i mean it We've, we've had fun conversations and, and it's been cool hearing about this journey and your film and all that, but I feel like I learned uh, so much more today. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I really yeah, appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Way Out There. A big shout out to Gray for sharing his time and his story, and be sure to follow his work on the Sea Change documentary as well as the Apparent Winds expedition. If you haven't already, you can subscribe to The Way Out There on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever platform you prefer to get the new episodes without any delay. That's it for now, and as always, we hope you're finding the way out there.